Well, good morning. A little snowy out there, and uh, so it's good having you here, and those of you that are joining us online, welcome. If you're new to our church, outside, outside of the uh, sanctuary to the right is a welcome desk. We would love it if you would go there and just let us know of your attendance, and we also have a gift for you there. Um, if you as well have been here for a while and you're not signed up for the newsletter, uh, please go out there and sign up. Uh, most of our information from the church comes by way of a newsletter that comes out on Tuesdays and Saturdays. It will give you information about things that are going on here at the church, um, significant prayer requests as well. That's how you're going to really get a lot of information about our church, as well as going to our website, thechapelnj.org. You'll get a lot of good information there, uh, Lord willing. I want to read a passage for you, and then I want to go through some prayer requests before we um, open our time here. Psalm 67 says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase, O God. Our God shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. And as you heard the psalmist over and over again, he is praying that God's name would be glorified out into the world. And that's why we're here to know about our God and then to spread his message out to the world and to praise him because of his grace and his kindness and his favor. So please keep that in mind as we worship here this morning. There are a number of prayer requests that I want to offer. I want to just offer uh, one specific one. Dave Mercer this week, uh, who's our church admin, is going in for pretty major, really major surgery uh, this week. Lord willing, uh, he will go well through that. Um, it is a heart surgery, and it will be on the 17th. So you probably have seen it in the prayer request. Please continue to keep our brother in prayer, and uh, we'll also pray about a number of other ones this morning. So let us go to the Lord in prayer. <sighs> Father, as we um, come here and thank you and worship you, because you are the great God, it's amazing that you make your face to shine upon us in such a gracious way, Father. There's nothing that we deserve. There's nothing that we merit in order for you to be obligated to give that to us. You give us your grace and you give us your intimate look in your face day after day because of the precious work of your son. We praise you for that. Lord, we are here to know you more and to worship you and then to be empowered to leave here to have a global reach, Father. I pray that you would help us to be witnesses of your grace and witnesses of your mercy out into the world. Father, I pray that we would proclaim the gospel. I pray that we would display the gospel in our lives. Lord, please forgive us for the many ways that we make the things of this earth more important than your glory, your presence, your power your purpose, Lord. Lord, today I pray that we would praise you. I pray that this would not be a service primarily about us, but a service primarily about you, your son, and your spirit. So fill us with your spirit today. 
Lord, I thank you for the fact that you're a God who hears our request. I thank you for the fact that you love us and that you hear us and that you want to answer. So, Lord, I, I pray for the number of requests right now. Lord, I pray for uh, Kim Jones as she continues to grieve, Lord. I pray for her family. I pray that you'd be wrapping your arms around her right now. I pray that you'd be ministering your comfort. You are the God of all comfort. I pray that you would comfort her in this time as well. Lord, I pray for Sherry and the passing of her Nana, Lord. I pray for her as she's also had some other struggles going on, Lord. I pray that you would remind her that you are with her and you will never leave her or forsake her. Uh, Lord, I pray for Tom and we pray for continued work. It's been over a month, Father, or more uh, with hospitals and rehabs and all these other things, Lord, I pray that you would give wisdom to the doctors. I pray for healing for his body. I pray for work in his life. I pray for Victor and Diana Kelly. Father, we continue to plead for um, our brother and our sister. Father, as Diana is going through these struggles, Father, I pray that you would give her the strength. Thank you for the ministry that she continues to have even as she's going through this trial. Continue to work in her and through her. For Gary Hoyt, Father, as well, we pray blessings upon him. Pray for healing and pray for wisdom for his doctors and for, for Dave Mercer, Lord, as we were just alluding to earlier. Lord, I pray for him with the surgery coming up on, on Thursday. And even as I was talking to him this week, he's all focused on the work that he's doing here and the transition of things. And Father, he is so focused on his ministry here in spite of the things that are going on. I pray for his family. I pray that you would support him and support them, Father. I pray for wisdom and skill for the doctors as they go into this surgery. And I pray that he would come out stronger and better than ever. And I pray for the service, Lord. I pray for my brother, Tim, as he brings the word. I pray for the music team here, Lord. I pray for us as a congregation that we would worship you. And as we take your table this morning, I pray that we would be reminding ourselves of what your son did for us and what he continues to do for us is that he intercedes for us even right now. Help us to bring glory, honor, and majesty to your name today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Join us in singing on the cross of Calvary. On the cross of Calvary, your heart was torn to bring us peace. You gave it all. Jesus, the mystery, the mystery of man. Oh, 
It's your breath in our lungs. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise to you only. You give life. You give So we pour out our 
tragedy of all time to the disciples and to those who follow Jesus that he would die turned into our greatest redemption the greatest the gospel the good news the best news that is possible that Jesus raised from the dead and in so doing holds the keys as the Bible says to death and Hades and if I simply believe in that and lay down my life to him that I also go free. I have defeated death. Yes, I die a physical death, but not a spiritual death. Lord, we thank you this morning. We can sing and worship you. We can praise you and that you have our past, our present, and our future in your hands. There's nothing we should fear because you are with us. Every step of the way, you are with us. We thank you, Lord, that we can sing to you that the breath you put into our lungs, the life you gave to us, the heart that beats, Lord, can praise you. We feel a wholeness and a, and a completeness in that when we use what you've given us to praise you. God, we ask now that the, the breath that you've put in Pastor Tim's lungs to speak your word this morning, God, would minister to us and bless us and that you'd be glorified. We thank you for this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I did not clarify her timing, so. All right, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to let the children be dismissed for junior church. I think they're on prompt on that, so they're all good. Good to see all of you here this morning. I trust that your hearts are encouraged by the songs that we have had the privilege and blessing of sharing together this morning. Last week, we dove into the difficult topic of... I shouldn't say difficult, but the complicated topic of the wife's relationship to her husband. And all the women are probably thinking, no, 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 it is complicated. <laughs> it can be challenging. It honestly can be difficult to understand because of the degrees and levels of brokenness that are present frequently in marriage. So whenever we preach on the topic of marriage as a pastoral team, you always feel a sense of I am speaking truth to people who at some point in their personal experience, either in their family of origin or in their marital family, have experienced some degree or level of brokenness. And the question that we often ask, and I, I think this is very true of the, of the culture that we live in today, is there hope for marriage? Is it possible to be happily and joyfully married? Now, my, my answer to that question is yes. I've, I have been richly blessed in my uh, formative family. 
in my uh, relationship with my wife, I am, I am happy and content, imperfect, okay? profoundly imperfect. But I can tell you that I am hopeful. I'm saddened by the fact that only 40%, and I mentioned this last week, but I just think these statistics need to settle in and cause us to cry out to God for hope. It's sad that 40% of those surveyed actually think that marriage is valuable for long-term relationships. Okay, so six out of 10 don't think that marriage is gonna play a role in their life. And only 40% see value in it for human relationships and for culture. That's a stunning number. The interesting number that I shared last week is that 80% of people surveyed hope one day to be happily married. Okay, and that's almost schizophrenic, isn't it? But, but I think what it says is that what God has created in the institution of marriage for our happiness and strengthening is attractive. There is something innately in us that says, yes, created in the image of God, I was created for intimate community as what exists within the Godhead itself. So there is a picture in marriage and a, a, a longing for this deeply personal and satisfying relationship. Is it possible? One man who appeared to be happily married for 40 years was asked by someone, what is the secret to happiness in your marriage? His reply that at the time that they got married, he and his wife had an agreement. And the agreement was that the wife would make all of the minor decisions and that the husband would make all of the major decisions. And he, he said, it's funny, you know, we haven't had a major decision for 40 years. Yeah, I'll let that settle in for a second, okay? <laughs> My wife and I are getting close to 40 years down the road here. I think we're at 36 this year, 37. God bless you. <laughs> well, to review what we talked about, and this is just a quick summary. The text builds on spirit-driven mutual submission, okay? A mutual caring and desire to see the growth and benefit of one another, generally speaking. So verse 21 says, submit to one another out of fear or reverence for Christ. Okay, we know that that mutual care is driven by the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, which ties in grammatically very strongly to the submit to one another. And then husbands, submit to your wife by sacrificial service. Wives, submit to your husband by encouraging your husband's role as a leader in the home. Okay, so this be filled with the spirit leads to the calls that enable us to have joy and satisfaction in the context of human relationships where we are most prone to struggle. So what is scripture doing? Scripture is anticipating fallen creatures struggling in things that God speaks about and that God designs for our joy and for our satisfaction. So as you read through scripture, when you read through the portions on husband and wife relationship, you should always be anticipating that God is anticipating some level of brokenness that's present in your relating that he wants to fix by the power of his word 
and by the work of the Spirit. Okay? So always read the text, and we should be preaching the text with an intention to say, how does this text impact my life? What is this text asking of me? What is it What is God requiring of me that will lead to mutual joy and happiness in my marital relationship in this context? Okay? So you're going to do best as you read scripture. If you always ask, why was this written? What was God by his spirit anticipating weakness? What weakness in my life was he anticipating that he was given direction so that I might enjoy growth for his glory? Okay? It's the way you should always be listening as God's word is spoken. So Paul presents this in the context of mutual submission. He presents role relationships that are complementary. In the context of the wife, she is encouraged to encourage her, her husband's role as a leader in the context of the home. And the husband is encouraged to love his wife like Christ loved the church by laying his life down for her. Those are the the overview. So a wife is encouraged to have her husband enjoy his role as a leader and to encourage that leadership. And a husband is to sacrificially love and serve his wife. Now, my experience has been this. I have not found people objecting, even generally in the culture. They may not like the idea of structure within marriage because most people tend to equate structure with value, right? So they they tend to think that their boss is more valuable than than they are profoundly wrong. Okay? And sometimes a wife may think that that role relationship implies or imputes more value to the husband. It does not. Does it impute more responsibility? Yeah. I mean, a, a profound level of responsibility comes with those roles, but it is not... A statement about individual's value. So the first thought that we looked at in relationship to husbands last week was that we are to love like Jesus. 26 through 28 is where we're going to pick up this morning. And this encouragement is to love by nurturing like Jesus. So let's read verse 25 and following. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is for her advantage, for her benefit. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way husbands ought to love their their wives As their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Okay, so verses 26 through 28 kind of strike this first note that we want to focus on this morning. That a husband is called to love his wife by nurturing and caring for her. Verses 26 and 27 make it clear that Christ takes a personal interest in the progress, in the growth uh, of his church, and that becomes a background against which we see the role of the husband as one who 
has the task of encouraging the progress of his wife. And the text could be stated somewhat like this. Just as Jesus is devoted to our progress entirely and sacrificially, so a husband ought to be devoted to his wife's progress. And the implication of the text is, husbands, in the same way that Christ loves you and loves his church, you should care for and encourage the progress of your wife. In the same way, and it's interesting that the idea of this, of this care and concern it has the aim of presenting her one day as a better person than she was prior to the marriage. To make her means to, to, to encourage a positive transformation by personal interest. And the implication clearly is that when we come into the marriage relationship, we come with needs, right? There's room for growth and progress in our lives. And that is an, an, an assumption that this text makes. And then 28, the second half of 28 is interesting. He who loves his wife loves himself. And I think we can assume that the inverse of that would also be true. If I degrade and criticize and fail to love my wife, I, in fact, am hurting myself. So this text comes with, with an encouragement to husbands to encourage the flourishing of their wife and the outcome of that. Not the goal of it, but the outcome of it is a mutual benefit, not only for the husband and wife, but for everybody related to that core relationship of marriage, okay? So as a husband, I have, I am given by God the task, the responsibility of seeing my wife move from where she is to where God wants her to be. I have a part in that, and I'm going to argue from this text that that responsibility is mutual. It works back and forth. As the wife grows, a humble Godly husband is receiving input from her also. Why? Because if I go back up to verse 21, it says there is this idea in all relationships of mutual submission. I bear a responsibility that I believe in this context is emphasized more, but there is also a mutual sharing that is implied in the broader context here. Okay, so men, God gives you the responsibility to be the spiritual leader in your home. You should be setting the pace. Here's the sad thing in American Christianity. Typically, in most homes, the strongest person spiritually tends not to be the man, but the wife. Okay, and that is, just be aware of that. Be aware that in the culture that you live in, men, there's a tendency to defer things to your wife that should not be deferred. And in fact, it is unfair to defer that to her. You should be stepping up. You should be being the man that God has called you to be. And in this context, that, in, that means encouraging her flourishing and her growth. Okay, and you guys all know the saying, right? Happy wife, happy life, right? Here's the truth. The more joy your wife finds in her relationship with you, the more joy you will find in life. Okay, and to ignore that, is to damage yourself. Now, what are the implications of that? If, 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 if the husband bears a primary responsible and the wife a fundamental responsibility for the encouragement of one another, what does that mean when we come together in marriage? 
All right, and this may be a newsflash for some of you. Hopefully not. The truth is that most people, when they prepare to get married, want to be accepted for who they are. Most men and women are not shopping for someone who can change them. Okay? In fact, most people are like, you're going to accept me as I am. Okay? Which is usually born out of ignorance or an overly high self-estimation. We should be coming into marriage saying, God, in the context of this relationship, make me the true man that you want me to be, like Jesus. And for the wife, God, make me the woman that you intended for me to be. Use this marital relationship and this marital proximity to expose areas of brokenness in my heart so that I can move from where I am today to where God wants me to be. Okay, and this is very much the idea here is the process of sanctification. The implication of the text is that men and women are better together than they are alone unless God has given you the call of singleness and celibacy. God has a design that you would come together in the most intimate and exclusive fashion. And that in that uniting, in that bonding, you would be a means of support and encouragement to one another. A means and a, and, and a source of growth in your personal lives that blesses the relationship and everyone related to that relationship. So there is a a beauty that is encouraged here, but it, it, it kind of rises up on a topic that's difficult. The text assumes that I come into my marriage with weaknesses. I come with strengths, but I also come with areas that need improvement. And nothing exposes my needs and my brokenness like the intimacy of marriage. Okay, that... Your mate knows pretty much everything about you except the things that you keep secret. And the truth is that your secrets have you. You don't have them. Okay? But your mate knows you in a way that no one else can know you because no one else spends that much time with you and is so involved in your daily decision making and is so capable of hearing your heart. Okay? Here's the step that is hard. To start to take advice from that person. Instead of perceiving it as criticism. Okay? Now, if what you're doing is critiquing, constantly questioning, constantly belittling, you are failing as a man to be the husband that God has called you to be. You need to stop it. Because that degrading criticism, subtle rejection of their opinions, etc., etc., over time, can have a devastating effect and it will ultimately lead also to your unhappiness because it will destroy the place where God designed for your ultimate joy and happiness in the earthly realm. All of this growth takes place in settings of conflict where my imperfections are exposed and where iron is to sharpen iron. Like as little kids, a lot of us probably messed around with rock tumblers. Okay, rock tumblers are interesting devices, little, little tubs that are on a little machine. They rotate, there's sand, water, and rocks inside. And you put rough rocks in and you get these little things out that you think are valuable gems. Okay, that process of beautification 
takes place in an environment of friction, of collision, and conflict. Don't resent the conflict. Don't resent the friction that naturally emerges in the context of closer proximity. Okay, if you're marriage minded, if you my my advice to you would be this. If you think it's hard out there in your workplace, okay, be prepared for the crucible that God is going to put you into in marriage for your benefit and growth. Don't resent the crucible. Don't resent the friction. The friction beautifies when you respond to it properly. Okay, if you resent it and resist it, you will destroy your marriage. But if you receive that, if a wife receives from her husband that those encouraging words that aim to help her flourish, beautiful things will happen. And if a husband is willing to humble himself and open himself up to receive mutually the benefit of that relationship, progress can occur over time. Sometimes it is a lot slower than we want it to be. But it can happen over time. And that, lo- that, that loving of one's wife can lead ultimately to liking of one's wife. There can be that type of beautiful and powerful transition. The sad thing is that in, in, in most of our marital decisions, we choose our mate on the basis of what attracts us to them. You know what I'm talking about, right? So the things that usually attract us are things that over time fade and change. When what really should be attracting us together is the inner character, the inner quality of individuals. So while I I will not argue that you should choose someone that you find fundamentally unattractive, okay? It's probably wise to find someone that you have some degree of attraction to. But understand that the things that cause attraction Love at first sight. One day those things will, not might, they will change in a disappointing fashion. Okay? So you should not make your long-term decision for permanence in marriage based on temporary things. You should also be bringing into the mix, does this person that I am attracted to have character qualities, have a love for God that will assist in shaping our lives together for the kingdom. All right, that becomes a a fundamental concern. Husbands, your call to lead involves unleashing your wife's giftedness, her talents, to see her flourish, to help her grow to be her best. You bear a fundamental responsibility to do that. And when you do, that wife that is growing in Christ's likeness will become the biggest blessing in your life. Okay? If my wife was in junior church, I would say this, but I'll say it anyway, okay? I I say this to college kids. I say, when you're thinking of marriage, find someone who loves Jesus more than you, okay? Because when you find that, you have a gift that will keep on giving and it will bless your life. For my own sake, okay, it is no attribution of anything to me whatsoever. Uh, But I am thankful for the marriage that God has uh, called me into. And ladies, I would say this to you. 
if you're marriage-minded. And I read this somewhere on Instagram or something a few weeks back, and I can't know who to attribute it to because I can't remember. But what they said is this, the man that God has for you will always draw you closer to him. Right? The man that God has for you will always draw you closer to him. They will never call you to compromise. They will never pressure you. Because true love has in mind the growth and flourishing of this person. And if I, by my actions or demands, create guilt or discouragement in their heart, I cannot say that I'm loving them like Christ. So as you look and seek and discern, find someone who is encouraging you to get closer to Jesus. And when you, if two people, I always do this in, the, in, in premarital counseling, talk about what creates unity. When two people are moving towards the same object, they by necessity grow in proximity to one another. So two people say, I want God to be glorified in my life. I want God's love to be manifest through my life. And you have two people moving towards that common goal. The outcome of that is that you are moving closer together as well. Does that make sense? So find someone who is going to encourage your growth and your flourishing, and you will be blessed. Now, Paul then gives an analogy real quick, verse 29 and 30, where he's kind of, he who loves his wife loves himself, verse 29. After all, now he's going he's gonna to drift into what's normative in human relationships, okay? Uh, normative in the human experience. Watch what he says. He says, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body. Just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. The analogy is this, and this, this is stereotyping, okay? Men, Paul is saying, have a natural tendency to crave care for self, okay? There is a natural inclination on the part of men to want to benefit. Now, is it likely that the word, no one ever hated his own flesh, is a generic sense, no woman or man ever hated their own flesh? I think you could imply that from this text, but the broader structure of the text seems to be saying that the focus here is on the husband's role in relationship to his wife. And Paul brings up a natural tendency to say that the husband's love for his wife should mirror and spring off of his natural tendency to love himself. Okay? Now, I, I, I go to the gym on a regular basis. Okay? And I have to make that announcement because otherwise it might be unobserved. Okay. <laughs> and I've noticed something. I go to a gym. There, there's a number of, it's near Easton High School, okay? So if I go at like 2.30 in the afternoon, all these young athletes, football players, lacrosse, whatever. And I, I, I chuckle to myself because I'm, I'm on the treadmill acting like I'm over 60, Okay. And I'm cruising along, and right in front of me is all the barbells and all the mirrors that cover the wall. That's like 20 feet away from me in between is all these places where all these young bucks come in and are working out. <laughs> the, 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 the awkward natural tendency to admire yourself, to take delight in yourself, to care for yourself, in that setting is astonishing. 
And I, master, I, I, it's, I, I'm, I'm cruising along watching the TV, and I see this young guy just get done doing his whatever 70-pound dumbbells, and <laughs> he's walking by the mirror. He, but it's subtle. It's not, it's not this. It's more like, like you, you see this self-admiration that no one taught that kid to do that. All right, that young man is manifesting a natural tendency to want to be admired, to be coddled, to be praised, and to be cared for. Here's what Jesus is saying. Men, in the same way that you have a natural inclination for that, to get your attaboys, do that for your wife. And let it flow freely and naturally. I have a daughter that has three children. And she'll stay unnamed. Okay. I only have one that has three children, but she'll stay unnamed. She has coined a phrase for when her husband or my other daughter's husbands are sick. She says, oh, they're man sick. Because when your mom's sick, none of your obligations go away. You're still doing everything you normally do, and you're sick. But for, to be man-sick means to be laying in bed or couch. And the word that came to my mind this morning was languishing, okay? You, you're incapacitated, okay? And there's this neediness that is expressed in that moment. That's why my wife's kind of, my daughter's kind of like, oh, my wife would probably put an accent on this. There's, <laughs> that's what they would say, well, what is mansick? Mansick is I'm craving attention because I'm languishing, I'm struggling, I'm hurting. Do you understand? My daughter's like, you yeah, know, nope, nope, I don't understand. Because <laughs> when the kids are sick and he has to go away for weeks at a time, I got to get up and do all this stuff, okay? And I got to do it when I'm sick and when I'm not sick, not sick, okay? There's a natural inclination to desire help, and encouragement on the part of a man. Now, what the text says is no one ever yet hated his own flesh. That is, as a rule of thumb, there is this natural desire to be cared for and to care for oneself. I, I noted in my, uh, in my notes that verse 29 says, after all, no one ever hated his own body, but they feed and care for their body. Yesterday, I think I actually forgot to eat lunch. Okay, I'm going to tell you something. That in, in, in my memory, that's the only time that I ever forgot to eat, okay? There is a natural tendency to have a need and meet the need. In, no one has to say to me, Tim, did you eat? Or Tim, you need to eat. I don't need that kind of encouragement. My wife is not tempted to give me that kind of encouragement. I, there's a natural inclination. And the reason Paul brings that up here is as you care for your own body, Begin to think more about caring for your mate. Cherish, love, care for, do everything that is required for their help and flourishing. And that's a dramatic shift from what is normal. Jesus Christ tenderly shepherds us. He is intensely personal in his working in our lives and we are no price. He loves and cares for us in this kind of way. Man, I want to say this to you this morning. Your masculinity, your manhood, 
is not measured by how much weight you can move, but by your capacity to love and sacrifice for the encouragement and benefit of your wife. And sometimes what a man may need to do, dangerous question, is to go to your wife and say, how have I failed? Because I sense that I have wounded you. How have I failed to see you flourish? What, what could I do? Most men come doing what they want to do. But a man ought to be asking, what can I do to encourage you? To help you flourish and become the woman that God wants you to be. Here's my suspicion. Most women will not resent that kind of leader who has their personal interest, growth, and flourishing at the center of their heart. Folks, here's the truth. That's the way Christ loves you. Selflessly, sacrificially, tenderly. That's why the picture is shepherding sheep. His aim is to get you to the stuff that you need to grow and to flourish and be healthy and have an enjoyable life. And that's the analogy here. That a man should love his wife in the same way that he tends to care for and crave care for himself. May God help us, men. The last point of this text is in verse 31. After giving all of this encouragement and contrasting the beauty of Christ's church with husband-wife, okay, which within which there is structure, there's headship, but never for personal benefit. But it's there. It's undeniable from a biblical perspective. Culturally, people may want to reject it. You can't resist this arguing from Scripture. I'm going to tell you. If you have questions about it, please feel free to see me. Okay? But it's impossible to understand that as Christ to the church, husband to wife, there is implied some degree of responsibility and structure that we need to embrace in order to flourish according to God's design. So what does Paul do as he ends this discussion that, that is difficult? What Paul does is he appeals back to original design. He's now going to quote from the book of Genesis chapter 2, where the first need in the created world, there was no helper suitable, no completer for Adam. God is going to meet that need. And that is the text that Paul is going to lay hold of and raise up to say that from the beginning, before the fall, this was God's design for human flourishing, particularly in the context of the marriage relationship. So men, we are called to love our wives according to the original design. And so in verse 31, he says, for this reason, okay, this mutual love and affection and, and encouraging to flourishing, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now, I want to say this to you this morning. One of the keys to understanding this, okay, one of the keys is that Paul's appealing back to original intent, to original design, because he understands that marriage is instituted and regulated by God. Okay, God creates it and God regulates it. What that means is, if I want to know how to flourish in the context of my marriage, I better get back to the original manual that the creator wrote to tell me how this machine best operates. 
how this relationship best flourishes. And so Paul, that's what he's doing. He's going back to the manual. Ephesus was a relational sexual mess. Never in the ancient culture was a wife to be honored in any of the teachings on household relationships. No ancient culture documents encourage this kind of selfless, sacrificial love towards a wife. Wives were usually used for personal benefit and pleasure. And Paul flips that on his head and appeals to original design... Because the purpose of the church and its marriages is that it is to be a light to the world around us. And that was true in Ephesus. Paul calls the church and men and women in their relationships to be utterly distinct, to be profoundly loving in a Christ-like fashion because the world is watching. And the way you find that out is when you make a mistake in your marriage relationship, people will let you know that they saw that. Okay, and when they see the opposite a couple that is moving in a godly direction, they take note of that as well. So this text, verse 31 says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The idea of uniting here thrives off of the concept of permanence. A permanence rooted in original design, rooted in the account in Genesis. And the text says that a man leaves his wife and some texts say, uh, cleaves to his wife. The idea is, is, is of covenant. Okay, the idea is of, is a, of, of, a, of a binding uh, contract, if you will. One writer defined it this way. He says, covenant in context of relationship, this idea of cleaving to his wife is a deep, exclusive, permanent, legal, personal, and binding commitment. Strong, isn't it? That's what marriage is. That's why in your marriage vows, most of you said, till death, what? Parts us. You know what that means? For the rest of my life. For the rest of my life. Without conditions. What then is happening in a marriage ceremony? When the vows are stated... Most of them don't talk about present love. That's a given in the context of a marriage ceremony, isn't it? Promises always are what? They're predictive of my future behavior. They say what I am committing to, and I personally, in any wedding that I've done or been to, have never heard a condition Placed in vows. Well, I don't know if you have. It would not surprise me if it's there. Okay? But the idea of sitting at a marriage ceremony and seeing the beauty and hearing the joy of all that is being proclaimed would be decimated by the word if. Destroyed. Ruined. What happens in marriage, this idea of covenant is a promise of future love, to love, to cherish, to care, to be loyal, regardless of emotional struggles and regardless of physical decline. Things change. Circumstances change. Stressors come into the relationship, job loss, financial struggles, all kinds of things come. 
But the promise stands. It bears no conditions. It is a promise that in the future I will do what I said I would do. Otherwise, I am not the man that I claim to be. Okay, so Paul, he's okay. Accent, exclamation point at the end of this discussion. Husbands, love your wives. Here's the accent. Your relationship with your wife is covenant. It's not contract. It's not, oh, I don't have those feelings anymore. That is not a biblical category. That's a category of the world in which we live that says that your relationship is more about chemistry than it's about choices to love. Okay, folks, understand this. Biblical love is a choice to sacrifice selflessly for the benefit of someone else. And when I got married, I made those kinds of promises. And if you see me, stop keeping those promises. Get in my face. And I am confident in this room there are a number of people that would do that. And I'm thankful for that. Covenant says that vows matter. This implies partnership and team. This coming together and becoming one becomes very interesting because within that oneness, there is a degree of structure and mutual submission. But it really is, we are in this together. And when you flourish, I flourish. And when I flourish, you benefit from that. So there is this motivation to keep the team strong, to understand we complete each other and are better together by God's design. This also implies fidelity, right? Because this is one man and one woman in context. To keep myself for you alone, it is exclusive in terms of all sexual things. And that means not only physical, but also emotional. I don't endanger my wife by entertaining emotional attachments to another woman outside of my marriage. And I set up clear boundaries in my life so that we are protected. Do not underestimate the depth of your sinfulness and your brokenness. Do not be the man that says, I would never. It implies a deep commitment. This is the way Job said it. He said, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a woman to lust. I think that involves what you listen to and that involves what you look at. Because those things will degrade, will bring disintegration into that covenant that was meant to be binding, exclusive, and permanent by God's design for the benefit of culture, for the benefit of the church, for the glory of God, fight to be the men that God wants you to be, understanding that it springboards off of original design. Jesus interpreted these words by saying this. A husband leaves his mother and father, cleaves to his wife, they become one flesh. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew. He says, therefore, what God joins together, let no one separate. That's original intent summarized in the words of Jesus. The call is that we fight for our marriages. We fight for them for the glory of God because we understand verse 32, that our marriage 
is predictive. It says something about a coming day that is loaded with glory, that is loaded with amazement and joy. Watch what Paul says in verse 32. He says, this is a profound mystery. Not getting along with a woman. Okay? That's not the mystery. Or getting along with the difficult man. That's not the mystery. The mystery is that this getting along, this covenant relationship is predictive. It points to a greater day. This is not ultimate. Right? Dylan and Anna, you guys got a wedding coming up. You're going to get married and it is beautiful. Here's what I want you to know. It is not ultimate. It is glorious. Why? Because it is deeply and intimately connected to the ultimate. That relationship in life physical that's temporary because one day one, by death that will be broken. Okay? So it's not ultimate. It's not it's permanent in life, but it's not permanent eternally. Okay? But it is predictive of a day that is coming, of a future marriage ceremony. Please, do you understand this? The Bible starts with a wedding, and it ends with a wedding. One is temporary, predictive. One is ultimate. And free from all brokenness and sin. So this relationship is pointing me towards a great, everything I long for in this, that I hope for when I sit at a wedding ceremony and I, I hear promises that are striking and I'm, I'm barely thinking about them, but I find them beautiful, attractive. I want it to be true. One day in the ultimate truth that it points to, it will be true. This is a profound mystery. I am talking about Christ and the church. So that the relationship that we have with Jesus that is instituted by his shed blood through our forgiveness and redeeming. And he, he brings us into his, his family. He being the ultimate spouse. We being the bride of Christ, the church. And we, we learn from that relationship how to live in this relationship. Pointing to the ultimate relationship. It is predictive. There is truth hidden. This is the idea of mystery. There is truth hidden in marriage that the full meaning of could not be understood till the cross of Christ. I could not understand the love that Jesus Christ has for me until the cross. It's pictured in marriage. It's anticipated in marriage imperfectly. But it finds its fulfillment. In the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. And men, that's why Paul says, men, if you're wondering how to be the man that God called you to be, look at this, focus on this. Let it instruct, let it inform, and let it change you. The last verse of the text says this, men, let each of you love your wives as he loves himself. And let the wife respect her husband. Men, the accent is clearly on not being a boss. Not being the final authority. But being the selfless, sacrificial lover of your wife. And Colossians 3 adds this phrase. Love her selflessly and never treat her harshly. 
Ever messed up on that one? I have. And may God give us the courage when it happens to remember that through the cross there's hope. To seek the forgiveness from God first and then from her mate that we desperately need. Make her role a delight, not a duty. The fascinating thing about this text to me is that in this text on marriage, the most expansive text in the New Testament on marriage, Paul never commands the man to lead his wife. Let that settle in. Paul never commands the wife in this text to lead his wife. You know what the command is? Love your wife. Because that's how Jesus leads. Men, respect is one, not demanded. If your role does not intimidate you, if it doesn't scare you, you probably don't understand it. If you have to insist that your wife follow your lead, there is a chance that you've already failed to exemplify Jesus. When you struggle, when you compromise and cross lines and see cheap affection and violate covenant, you've believed a lie from the evil one that you can ignore original design, God's original design without consequence. You justify running from rather than staying like Jesus did. There's a danger in struggles in marriage. You know what the danger is? The danger is that you will align yourself with people that think like you. So you can find justification for disobeying God himself. You let other people become your advisor when only Jesus should be your advisor in this realm. You ought to seek wise counsel. Please understand what I'm saying. But you ought to find someone that knows where the mouth of Jesus speaks in regard to this topic. Now, here's the question. Does this sound negative? Do I sound negative today? Okay. I I can tell you this. I am hopeful. Okay? I am hopeful because Jude 24 tells me I should be hopeful. I tell people when they give their wedding vows that we, we should probably change the words from I will to so help me, God. Okay? Because the promises that I make are incomprehensibly large. And the struggles that I will face in the future may exceed my expectations, the trouble. And I will be tempted in the struggle to throw it away. And I will believe the lie of Satan that everybody around me will be fine if I destroy the context that God created for me and my kids to live in. I'm going to tell you something. If you believe that, you are a fool. You are a fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God or lives like God's truth does not matter. So you can say, well, I believe in God. But if you don't do what he's saying, you lack proof that you believe in God. Marriage will test you like nothing else. And the only way that you will survive the the difficulties and obstacles of it is to learn to live in the overflow of love. One writer called it, you need to become a philanthropist in your marriage. A philanthropist is someone who has more money than they need or desire. And the result is that they spend their life giving it away. I am never more loved than I am by the cross of Jesus. 
I never understand God's love for me more than when I stare at the cross, which we sang about so beautifully this morning. And when I know I am loved, what happens? There is this overflow. It's not work to love out of the overflow. A philanthropist typically becomes a philanthropist because they feel satiated with goodness and in this context with, with financial wealth and they freely give. It's not cost. They don't see it as cost. They see it as a delight. And a husband who, who stands before the cross and saturates himself in an understanding of the selfless covenant love of Jesus for him out of the overflow he begins to relate to a mate that is imperfect and vice versa. Does that make sense? So that when we come this morning to the Lord's table, I, I need to remember I can only practice a love that I have experienced. So if you've never trusted Christ, if you've never come before the cross and experienced transformation, I'm going to tell you something. You can't love your wife like Christ loves the church until you have experienced that love as a broken sinner, seeing redeeming, saving grace pouring out and changing you. As Christ loved the church, husbands should love their wives. When a husband is loved by Christ and is conscious of his deep level of forgiveness, has owned his rebellion, his difficulty, his criticism, has, has, has owned it personally and been forgiven, I don't deserve that, but I am. It should completely break his heart and cause the love of Christ to flow out of that amazed, broken heart towards a wife that desperately needs it. I'm, man, I'm not saying that your wife is perfect. I'm not saying that she is deserving of your love because none of us are, but she needs it. And God has called you to give it in a way that glorifies him and exalts the work of Christ. See, that's Paul's ending point. The wife must respect her husband and the husband must love his wife. First John 3 says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for others. And if Christ so loved us, we ought to love one another. You know, the real secret to marriage isn't who makes decisions. Okay? It's not who makes big decisions and small decisions. That's not the secret. The secret is being loved by Christ. The secret is understanding the mystery. The mystery is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate, perfect, selfless, sacrificing spouse who gave his life so that I could be transformed. And then I allowed that love of Christ, that affection of Christ, that sacrifice of Christ to inform my relationship with my mate. When I lose that, I struggle and my wife hurts. But when I'm focused on that, and changed by it. She benefits. And when she benefits, guess what? We both enjoy that. Okay? It's hard work. I admit that. It's not easy. But I am hopeful. I've seen in the last couple years two situations where it is clearly God. Unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless in his presence with great joy to him be glory and honor and power forever in our marriages in our relationships amen we're going to come to the lord's table
And as we do that, this is a celebration of the work of Christ at Calvary's cross. If you have personally believed in Jesus, this is a place where you celebrate what Christ has done for you, where you magnify and exalt all that Christ has done for you. And where we realize that our marriage is predictive of what this ultimately claims for us as the bride of Christ. That the joy and hope of heaven is freely given because of the work of Christ. This comes with a warning. To celebrate the forgiveness that Christ has provided for me, Paul says, before you eat this, before you do this, let each one examine himself and then eat of that bread and drink of that cup. And just as marriage is predictive and proclaiming, so is this. As marriage proclaims Christ's love in this selfless sacrifice, so communion declares afresh, proclaims anew the love of Christ and the grace of God that is available for every person in this room. If you've never trusted Christ, if it's just for you, been a story that you know, but not a truth that you have received. I would encourage you this morning just to bow your head before you get the elements and say, okay, Lord, I'm a sinner in need of your grace. And today I see it's available. In the selfless love and sacrifice of Christ, I see hope that I could be different. Folks, I want to tell you something. If nobody else thinks you can be different, Jesus does. And Jesus knows you can be. When you surrender to his love, it will change you into a philanthropist who loves because they are loved, not to get love. Lord, help us as we partake of these elements to celebrate afresh the sacrifice of Jesus that leads to our saving and that helps us to understand how to live in the context of marriage in permanence for your glory. Help us to proclaim as we receive, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask the men to come to serve the elements this morning.
the communion service is this opportunity to be able to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us. And as we take a piece of bread and as we take juice from a vine, it reminds us of the body broken and blood shed for you. As we nourish together, it reminds us of the spiritual nourishment that we have in Christ. So this piece of bread reminds us of the broken body, take and eat. In the cup, we remind ourselves of the blood that was poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. Take and drink. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the immense blessing that we have in your son. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to take a communion table to go into the waters of baptism, to symbolize what your son has done for us. His shed blood, his broken body. Father, I pray that you would never help, help us never to forget what Christ has done. Help us to be so Christ-centered, cross-focused, and help us to live out that gospel message out of our lives. Continue our worship here this day. In Jesus' name, amen. sound amazing love now flowing down from hands and feet that were nailed to the tree as grace flows down it covers me amazing grace how sweet the sound, amazing love, now flowing down from hands and feet that were nailed to the tree, as grace flows down, it covers me, it covers me. It covers me, it covers me, and covers me. Amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, amazing love, now flowing down from hands and feet that were nailed to the tree, 
as grace flows down it covers me it covers me it covers me it covers me and covers me it covers me it covers me it covers me and covers me Amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. On March the 2nd will be the grand opening for Community Blend, and uh, we're looking forward to that greatly. It's a uh, a vision that started years ago, Holy Spirit inspiring Jewel for this concept, and we are about to see it go live. So we're very excited for that. We're going to be praying over that this morning as we end our service, and we're also going to have an opportunity to enjoy the delicious coffee. It'll be out there, the Community Blend Coffee today, so please make sure to get out there, stop in. And for those of you who don't drink coffee for some reason, um, there is tea as well, so we don't want to isolate you from that. All right, join with me in prayer, please. Lord, we do thank you for your leading, for your provision, for opening doors where we're not even looking for them or seeing them, Lord, and just uh, we're so thankful for that. Lord, we see that evidenced in this, this building that you have made available for us, Lord, to make an impact on this community. And Lord, our desire has been to be a light to this community. And Lord, we thank you for uh, the vision of Community Blend, for those who have worked to make that come to fruition. And today, Lord, as this, uh, as this ministry goes live, we just pray a blessing over it. Your Holy Spirit would uh, just have its, your hand, Lord, in every aspect of it, Lord, for the, uh, for the logistics of everything that has come together. We give you praise, Lord, for that. And we just pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would just draw people in to experience this gathering place, Lord, where they can feel welcome, where they can enjoy some, some quality refreshment and an opportunity, Lord, to just be here together and to hear of you. And Lord, that's our desire that people would come to know you through this ministry. We just pray a rich blessing over Community Blend. Lord, bless us as we leave this place. And for those, Lord, who need a touch from you, we again just lift them up. And I we pray. Amen. Amen.